and welcome to ACS Chemical Biology's podcast for August 2007. I'm Sarah Tagan, Managing Editor for the Journal. I'm joined by our Senior Editor, Eric Martins. Welcome, Eric. Hello, everyone. In this month's issue, we feature four commentaries on science education. Elizabeth Taylor and Catherine Drennan from MIT describe a newly enriched curriculum for a chemistry class designed for non-majors. By highlighting connections between chemistry and biology, they are able to harness the students' excitement about medicine and biology while still conveying essential concepts of chemistry. Deborah Tomasebi and James Williamson discuss an exciting new joint program between the University of San Diego, USD, known for its undergraduate education, and the Scripps Research Center, a world-class research institute. Postdocs from Scripps have the opportunity to pair up with professors at USD and get first-hand experience teaching at a primary undergraduate institution. Coppola and colleagues describe another program for chemistry postdocs at the University of Michigan. They are now offering fellowships in which they are called upon to teach classes in the core areas of chemistry, even as their own research becomes more interdisciplinary. And finally, Joseph Reddy and Kristen Lynch present the multidisciplinary approach to chemical biology taken in the Biological Chemistry Training Program at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. In both the classroom and the laboratory, they have built upon the traditionally strong departments, like molecular biology and biochemistry, by linking them with organic chemistry and synthesis. They hope this will prepare students for research at the interface and foster collaborations between departments. In this issue, we feature articles from the labs of Jamie Kate, Peter Durvin, Per Hammerstrom, and Eric Prosnitz. We'll be speaking with Per Hammerstrom later in the podcast, but first we want to highlight some interesting content you'll find only on our website. We're highlighting careers in pharma and biotech on Ask the Expert. Uli Stiltz, Director of Chemical Sciences for Sanofi Aventis, Mary Catherine Johansson, a senior scientist at BioSearch Technologies, and Hans Johansson, also a senior scientist at BioSearch Technologies, will be fielding your questions about what it's like to work in pharma and biotech. I recently caught up with Mary Catherine and Hans to ask them a little bit more about jobs in biotech. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. We're happy to be here. So can you tell me a little bit more about what it's like to work for a small company? Well, um, the best part about it is the close interaction with people who directly affect what you do. You get to know your bosses and your bosses' bosses, and if your work has a direct impact on how well the company does. So you never feel like a, a small person. I mean, you always have a direct influence on what happens with the company. You know which cog in the wheel you are, pretty much. Your ideas are, are valued, and you can actually see them coming to fruition the entire way. And things happen quickly. I think that's a, a big difference. In a big company, your voice might not be heard, or maybe you don't see the impacts of what you do. But in a small company, everybody has to toe the line. So do you feel like you get to wear many hats by working in a small company? Yes, I had to assemble my own bookshelf. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes there isn't somebody to take care of a mess or, or do something small. You have to do the big, but on the other hand, maybe you have to do things that are sort of beyond what you might expect, too. You have to act as your own product manager, for example, and see your ideas really develop into tangible products. 
So it's great because you can play a variety of roles, but you, on the other hand, you have to be willing to do that and step up and do what's needed. Do you think, in terms of your career, do you think that having done a, a postdoc, whether it's in academia like, like you did or in industry like other people do, do you think that um, gives you better opportunities? Absolutely. I mean, as I've mentioned, I think you actually get a chance, good chance to, to get new skills, get different skills from your PhD. You get to meet a lot of people who can become important contacts for your future network. I'm still in touch with many of the people from my postdoc time, and they're becoming more important for my career at this point because I'm uh, tracing back to my RNA roots, and that project will have some collaboration with people who I actually made friends with when I did my postdoc. Yeah, like Hans says, that the larger network makes a big difference, but also just maturing as a scientist and uh, getting perspective and, and also seeing uh, different labs, different cultures, different environments, because the, the PhD can, can be a very intense and very selective experience. Having a postdoc can just let you see a larger part of the world and how things are done. So if each of you had to give a piece of advice to someone who's finishing up their graduate work, what would it be? Number one is finishing up the work. <laughs> Find a couple of uh, options for your postdoc, something that you would like and something that you would like and something you might like. And then apply for money. If you can bring your own money, your own research funds or fellowships, that gives you more flexibility and the uh, likelihood of actually getting the postdoc position as well. I'd say do what makes you happy and follow your instincts. I didn't expect to be working in biotech at all, and it's worked out very well for me. And I, the people felt right, and it, I could see an opportunity for me as a scientist. So be open to new ideas and don't dismiss the unexpected. Well, thanks to both of you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Our experts would love to hear from you, our listeners. Send them your questions about pursuing careers in pharma and biotech at www.acschemicalbiology.org. The August issue of ACS Chemical Biology features four exciting research papers. To learn more about the junior authors of these papers, please see the Introducing Our Authors feature in print and on the web. This month, we meet five young scientists, Maria Borovinskaya, Nicholas Nichols, Peter Nelson, Chitana Ravankar, and Shinichiro Shoji. Read this section and get a younger chemical biologist's perspective on their research. It's believed that aggregates of the peptide beta amyloid are key to the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's disease. However, A-beta plaque structure is quite heterogeneous, which makes understanding the effects of these plaques difficult. Per Hammerstrom and colleagues developed a luminescent polymer to help them study these plaques. Welcome, Pear. Tell our listeners about the probes you developed. Well, these molecules were originally based on a conjugated polythiophene scaffold that was developed for organic electronics here at the Inchopin University by Professor Ola Inganes. These current probes were thereafter redesigned by using different sidechain functionalities to uh, redirect these polymers into being more water-soluble. 
And that was done by Professor Connorson, which is working on organic synthesis. So there have been quite a, a big crowd working on this project. But the key person to this was Peter Nielsen, which actually a couple of years ago found that these polymers change their conformation when they bind to different structures, such as proteins. So, so, so that was sort of the opening to realizing that we can use these polymers for conformational studies. Hmm. So how did these probes help you understand more about the structure of the A-beta plaques? Well, we, we know that a red-shifted fluorescence from these luminescent polymers reflects a probe that's planar and that's stacked in sort of a you know, highly or tightly packed structure. On the other hand, when these polymers are fluorescent in the, you know, more on the green side, that reflects a solitary probe has a twisted side, a twisted backbone, which, you know, a shorter conjugation length would render that polymer greener rather than red. So what's interesting was that when we bind these to amyloid fibers, which is a very structured, highly ordered beta sheet structure from proteins, these polymers are usually fluorescent in the red channel because they're tightly packed and they're planar when they bind to the fiber. But in the current work, we also uh, were able to generate fibrils that was both, you know, more of a disordered type and a type that's very, you know, longer and more rigid. Hmm. And the rigid fibrils, they were luminescent in the red side. And the more disordered fibrils were green. What was most interesting was that we found that the same types of, you know, heterogeneous structures were found in the brains of an Alzheimer's disease mouse model. So the, the conformation of the probe gives you indirectly the confirmation of its target. So what does the presence of these different types of plaques tell you about the nature of the disease, and how could that help to guide the development of new therapies? The key hallmark of, of Alzheimer's disease, at least you know, the last 10 years, 20 years, has been the abundance of amyloid plaques in, in the brain, which are closely linked to pathological change, just asking about. So, but there is big controversy of which type of A-beta aggregate, A-beta plaque, is, is toxic to the neurons. As we found these heterogeneous structures, you know, architecturally heterogeneous structures, the key question is to ask now, which structure is toxic? And what our method could, could you know, facilitate is to, to help to follow, you know, if a therapy works on clinical symptoms, we can look back in the brain, you know, affected areas of the brain and see is a specific plaque type, has that disappeared, has that been altered somehow by the use of the therapy? So indirectly, we, we could improve diagnostics, perhaps, with this type of method. All right. Well, that's very interesting. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks. Antibiotics that are able to resist the emergence of resistant bacterial strains are of particular importance in today's world. By understanding the mechanism by which these drugs prevent the rise of resistance, scientists may be able to better design new and more effective antibiotics. Spectinomycin, a broad-spectrum antibiotic, induces only low levels of bacterial resistance despite widespread use in the clinic and veterinary medicine. Although known to target bacterial ribosomes, the precise mechanism by which spectinomycin inhibits translation has remained unclear. Previous evidence has shown that spectinomycin blocks or slows the translocation of tRNA and mRNA on the ribosome. This translocation step occurs after the formation of each peptide bond in the ribosome. 
It had been thought that the translocation process begins with a ratchet-like motion of the small ribosomal subunit followed by the swiveling of the small ribosomal subunit head. This complex motion allows the tRNA to exit the ribosome and translation to proceed. Jamie Kate and colleagues use biochemical methods and crystallography to study the details of spectinomycin's action. With crystallography, they found that spectinomycin binding to the small ribosomal subunit keeps the head domain from swiveling, thus trapping tRNA and preventing translocation. Additional biochemical evidence suggests that spectinomycin also alters the rate of translocation in vitro. Thus, by sterically blocking the swiveling of the head domain of the small ribosomal subunit, spectinomycin disrupts the translocation cycle. The hormone estrogen plays important roles in biology and disease, including reproductive development, bone formation, osteoporosis, and cancer. It has been known to mediate these effects through a number of cellular receptors, including the classical nuclear estrogen receptor and the 7-transmembrane G-protein-coupled receptor, GPR30. As a steroid hormone, estrogen is membrane-permeable, but GPR30 had been assumed to function at the cell surface, even though a sizable fraction of GPR30 is found intracellularly and on the endoplasmic reticulum, leaving open the possibility that intracellular GPR30 is more important for estrogen signaling. To determine the major site of estrogen-induced GPR30 activity, Eric Prosnitz and colleagues created a clever series of cell-permeable and impermeable estrogen derivatives to examine GPR30 signaling. They hypothesized that if functional GPR30 were expressed at the cell surface, estrogen derivatives that could get inside the cell and those that remained outside the cell would induce calcium mobilization and phosphoinositide 3 kinase activity, both markers of estrogen signaling. However, if functional GPR30 were predominantly intracellular, only the permeable derivatives would show activity. They showed that only cell permeable estrogen derivatives were able to activate GPR30 signaling to a significant extent. These results suggest for the first time that GPR30 can initiate signaling from an intracellular location, straying from the conventional wisdom that GPCRs function only at the cell surface. Hypoxia is a cellular condition caused by reduced levels of oxygen. Although involved in normal processes like programmed cell death, hypoxia also contributes to pathological processes including the progression of cancer and metastasis. Under hypoxic conditions, the transcription factor, hypoxia-inducible factor, or HIF-1, activates several genes that help cells adapt to reduced oxygen. In an effort to dissect the pathways modulated by HIF-1 under normal and disease states, Peter Dervin and colleagues utilized three different approaches for controlling HIF-induced gene regulation. They disrupted the interaction between HIF-1 and DNA using polyamides, which can be programmed to bind specific DNA sequences. They used the natural product echinomycin, or they used a small interfering RNA targeted against HIF-1. They then used microarrays to assess the genome-wide effects of interfering with HIF-1 binding to DNA. The authors found that the polyamide affected only a subset of genes regulated by hypoxia, while the siRNA and the echinomycin affected the expression of nearly all genes regulated by hypoxia. These results suggest that specific polyamides may be created to alter hypoxia-induced pathways that are involved only in disease progression. Thanks to all of you for listening. Join us next month for more ACS Chemical Biology highlights and interviews with our authors. To learn more about the journal, please visit www.acschemicalbiology.org.